0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Biography, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Andrew Curran about his new book, Diderot and the Art of Thinking Freely. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Well, thank you for joining us today. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well let's see. Um I uh, was uh, born uh, on Long Island. I didn't really know Long Island very well and then went uh, off to Queens. And then I really spent the m- mo- most of my life in upstate New York in Glens Falls, which is above Saratoga. And uh, I grew up there I went to Hamilton College, which is also in New York State. This is in, in the uh, early 80s when New York City was terrifying to me. Um, and then I uh, went off to Paris for a number of years and then came back to New York City where I did my Ph.D. at NYU. I uh, had a teaching gig at Union College for a couple of years, and I've been at Wesleyan since uh, 1998. 1998, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and uh, uh, during that time, I've been working on a lot of different things. My first book was on uh, history of uh, medicine and uh, the question of monstrosity. And then my second project was on the history of race. It's a big sweeping history of race in, in the 18th century. And this m- most recent uh, project, the Diderot book, is entirely different. Uh, that's a, a biography, as you uh, obviously know. And uh, that's a, a different kind of project. But I teach cl- I teach uh, language uh, classes and literature classes and history of ideas classes here at Wesleyan. It's a great place.
0: That's a great range of subjects. And it's one that gives you a great skill set considering how diverse of a writer and a thinker that that Diderot himself was. What was it that led you to uh, take on Diderot as a biographical subject?
1: Let's see. I, I think there's actually an anecdotal uh, exp- explanation. I had written a piece for the New York Times uh, um, about Diderot's 300th birthday in 2013, and uh, right afterwards, I was contacted by the press for which I wrote this book. That's Other Press, which is a, a, um, a an outfit from uh, New York City, which has done some really great biographies. And I worked very closely with the uh, editor of that press, Judith Gurwitch, for the entire five-year process or four-year process during which I wrote the book. And um, I, I think it's pretty much how I got into Diderot. I mean, obviously, I know Diderot very well since I wrote my first book on Diderot. And it was a Funny process for me because I'm uh, although trained in literature, I'm something of an intellectual historian, which is to say I love following big ideas as they move through time and they do different things and then have effects on people. And that's kind of a discourse view of history. And so, uh, uh, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of a life with, you know, um, uh, people's infidelities, uh, their uh, nitpicking, their um, petty rivalries and things like that was an entirely different kind of uh, situation. People emote in biographies, and I had to get used to that.
0: Uh, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about uh, Diderot, because he has this very interesting span in his life, and he... Uh, as, you met, as you've already alluded to, he has these. Uh, he, he gets married. He has his affairs, and, and yet it's not something that you would have expected for him, considering where he began. What was his early life like?
1: Yeah, I think to understand Diderot, um, you have to go back to the town in which he was born, and that is a, a small town near in, in, York, uh, in uh, Burgundy called Langres, which is spelled L-A-N-G-R-E-S. Uh, it's a place of amazing cheese. It's a funny little Game of Thrones type city that sits uh, on top of you know a sheared off volcano. It's about a mile square. For people who live near New York, it's about the size of Hoboken, and it is a citadel like city. It's a wonderful ramparts and very very isolated from kind of the rest of the world in many ways. It's a great place to visit, incidentally, and very interesting to kind of walk around and could can see for miles from the ramparts. You can walk around the city the whole way around. Um, and so he grew up in this little town. His father was a cutler, a bourgeois cutler, and his mother came from a family of tanners, uh, but many people in his family uh, went into the church. So his sister became a nun, his younger brother uh, became a very dogmatic, conservative uh, priest, and he ultimately became a deacon and then a um, a uh, 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 you know worked for the uh, the cathedral in long for a long time, an archdeacon actually he was. And so Diderot initially was on the same path. He was the oldest child in the family. He was on the same path, uh, was preparing for the priesthood very early. He was tonsured, which to say his head was shaved. He became an abbot. He was a brilliant student at that time. Something of a troublemaker, he used to get kicked out of school, even though he was the smartest kid essentially in the school, winning all the prizes. And about age 13, he goes off to Paris to study, which is rare at the time. He'd studied in 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 the Jesuit college, which is to say the Jesuit kind of middle school, our equivalent in Langres, goes off to Paris, where he studies at a place called the Collège d'Arcourt, which is a hardcore college, which is gone now, but it's very close to the Boulevard Saint-Michel in Paris, um, which was uh, kind of wiped out his school pretty much. Anyway, um, at that after that he goes to the Sorbonne, which was the Faculty of Theology within within the University of Paris. And at that time he uh, comes under the spell of the Parisian freethinkers. He is uh, um, uh, contaminated by the ideas of Voltaire, in particular, I think, about uh, kind of the new science coming from England. And basically, his kind of dogmatic uh, religious understanding of the universe starts falling apart in his. Uh, You know, 20s, and he drops out of the Sorbonne. Uh, He uh, becomes a ne'er do well, and he starts his life as a translator uh, to kind of piece together a meager existence. becomes estranged from his family. And so, what we have here is a story of somebody who starts off uh, in a very traditional conservative family in a very traditional conservative small city in paris who go in, 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 uh, in Burgundy goes to paris and comes under the, becomes under the uh, falls under the influence of free thinkers etc, and then becomes ultimately the most famous atheist of his era.
0: It's a very interesting intellectual path that he takes uh, in his early years. But I was also struck when you describe the more uh, mundane personal aspects of it, like how, for example, the degree to which his course was shaped by the death of, i, I, I correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe it was his uncle. He initially, he had this this career path charted out in the church. And then when this relative of his died and that closed off that career path, that you know, contribute to that shifting of him. And it, it struck me about how interesting it was that the insight that it gives us into some of the dynamics of French society at the time about how, you know, the, the, the possibilities of, of, of what was available and how uh, the choices you had to make because that, that that same dynamic plays a role when you're talking about those er, his early years as a writer and translator when he's struggling to make a living he's dealing with the expectations of his of his parents and he's dealing with the uh you know opportunities and limitations that were available to him it, it, and it, it it spoke to me i thought as to how uh, dramatic his shift was not just intellectually, but he goes out and breaks away from what would have been a very comfortable existence in the church to taking on this very challenging life as a writer and translator at a time when most people didn't who who wrote didn't necessarily make a good living off of it.
1: Yeah, um, let me start with the the great story you allude to, which is kind of fun and it's so emblematic of who he is. So his uncle, as you point out, is a shenwan; he's a canon. In um, the cathedral in long which is a big and powerful um, ecclesiastical uh, kind of organization in long huge, huge influence, so very rich at the time. And so his uncle says, "I'm going to turn. I'm going to make my my nephew into a, a canon as well. He's so brilliant. He's doing well at school, etc." And so he um, is setting this whole thing up. And uh, this is really a nepotistic kind of succession plan. It doesn't work out very well. The people in the chapter, which is the organization of the, can- the kind of the group of can- canons in the um, in the cathedral vote against this. And the uncle gets mad. He actually writes to the pope. And while the letter is is making its way to the Vatican he dies, the uncle dies. And therefore his request is null and void. And so this funny little contingency, this little tiny blip in Diderot's life changes everything because at that point he's not made canon and Diderot says, well, I'm gonna go to Paris. And so uh, there is somebody who writes, about this later on, one of the uh, uh, priests from Lanc writes that, gosh, had that letter gotten to gotten to the Vatican, Diderot might not have been a great priest, but he never would have become an unbeliever. And that's probably not true. He probably would have still been an unbeliever, but he would have been one of those kind of agnostic priests who kind of made their life, um, you know, tending the garden and perhaps... Uh, um, um, Uh, you know, doing some scientific experiments. Diderot once said that that might have happened to him had things worked out a little differently. And it's true, Diderot really often talked about the funny contingencies in his life, these little blips, these little kind of almost atom like things that are bouncing together and changed his life a lot. Um, You know, when he gets to Paris, he he has all these little odd jobs. You know, he's working, doing little uh, translations. He's writing sermons for people. He is... um, Uh, a tutor. He's tutoring in mathematics without really knowing uh, mathematics that well, but he teaches himself that because he's so brilliant. And uh, eventually just kind of admits like, really, I don't want to do anything. I just want to study. And he teaches himself Italian, he teaches himself English, he teaches himself English by using a Latin English dictionary, which is amazing because he was such a great classicist. And then that is that funny little thing that he does that allows him to begin begin a career as a translator uh, in uh, Andrew La Harpe, uh, working for a number of uh, of translators and, and a number of uh, editors who will later become the editors of the encyclopedia. So it it it's a life that uh, you know of a ne'er do well. It's a life of a kind of a a brilliant man who doesn't have a, a literary patron. We, uh, at this time, many people might have patrons, and Diderot was the, one of the first, a member of the generation of
0: people that did not have literary patrons. He was making it on his own. Working as a translator, I think, is something that is often very unappreciated and you mention the works that he uh translated and they really speak to this fascinating gamut of knowledge that he had to possess you have to think about when i think about it in terms of he has to know uh french and uh in in, in the language he was translating english but he the works he translates are so varied it's uh Stanion's history of Greece. It's uh, a a medical dictionary. It's a philosophical work. And the amount of vocabulary that he had to know in both languages to engage in, I mean, we're not talking about simply translating works of fiction here, in which he's just using a, a general vocabulary. He has to know the specialized knowledge in order to make sure that his translations are accurate.
1: Yeah, I think this is really the first school for becoming an encyclopedist, isn't it? I mean, he uh, is coming to grips with a lot of different kinds of knowledge in a lot of different areas, um, you know, as you said, medical, philosophical, and historical. And for uh, the kind of work he's going to be doing later on as the both uh, contributor to the encyclopedia and the editor, this is really a, a, great, a great opportunity for him. And I think the most important of those three works you're talking about is Uh, by Shaftesbury, the Earl of Shaftesbury. And this is a work of deism. And it's a kind of key thing to think about in Diderot's career, because uh, uh, Shaftesbury is a deist, as I said. And by deist, I mean, uh, somebody who believes in spiritual causality, who believes in God, who believes in a supreme being, but who has no need for Christian dogma and scripture. The argument from design, the teleological argument for God's existence is the uh, foundational idea behind deism. And Diderot uh, is uh, fascinated by this. It gives him an opportunity to grapple with some of the inconsistencies of Catholicism and Christianity in general, and in a way that doesn't yet reject the existence of god that's a big big step in the 18th century he's not an an atheist from birth as some people like to um, point out it's a slow and plodding process and translation as you point out becomes a an interesting way for him to kind of think through some of his early ideas before he really takes up the pen as a writer himself
0: was it the experience of translating uh, Shaftesbury's inquiry to uh, into French, what compelled him to start writing on his own? Or were there seeds of that prior to his decision to tackle that work?
1: Um, I think that was a, it was a different kind of translation in, in contrast to the uh, Grecian history or the, the medicinal dictionary. Um, uh, Shaftesbury was an opportunity for him to become a writer, I think. He said that you know, I translated Shaftesbury, but I essentially took up the pen after he put the book down, which is to say that it was a somewhat free-flowing translation. And it was to a large degree. He was dialoguing with different parts of Shaftesbury's characteristics, which is a, the larger work. And he also has these kind of funky footnotes, kind of a la David Foster Wallace, where he would just kind of go off on uh, various subjects. And, you know, some of the most interesting parts of the book are when he uh, really enters into dialogue with with Shaftesbury. Um, Deism was still a very heretical idea. This book was published anonymously. um, And uh, it was, uh, um, you know, seen as as a, you know, part of a slippery slope into atheism by many people in the church. It was a very, seen as a threatening idea. Uh, Freethinkers were thinking about uh, deism as well as atheism.
0: You actually bring up a good point that we should probably address, given that it plays a uh, very large role later on, and that's the role of censorship in uh, France during this time. You, start, you get into it as early as the translations, but of course it plays a very large role when we're talking about the encyclopedia later on. Could you explain a bit uh, how it, the, the challenges that uh, writers faced in publishing in France during this time and some of the ways that they uh, tried to get around those restrictions?
1: Yeah. Um... But, uh, you know, when we think about censorship uh, these days, we have an idea of you know, people clamping down on free speech, etc. But really think about censor almost as, as a kind of a physical or intellectual process, a, a sifting of ideas. So only the ones which are pure get through. And that's the kind of the, uh, you know, in, in an ideal, I- ideally kind of censored world. And um, people often thought even Diderot and his friends thought that censorship was kind of a good thing in some ways. Uh, it kept it kept, um, um, he, he kept uh, you know bad ideas from being published and although Diderot was a huge advocate for freedom of the press in many ways, particularly as he gets older, there are times where he he thinks that uh, the censor, which is a person has a, a role in in, in in tamping down uh, um, bad ideas that are circulating
0: Now if, um, if, if I may, it sounds like the, the role that some people assign to the editor today in an era where you know you have uh, open publishing, you have you have independent publishing and there's a the sense that if you only had an editor there to, you know, kind of filter through some of the bad ideas, we'd have better works. It sounds like that was the 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 i the, the concept that they uh, fixed upon the censors back in the 18th century.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. Um, the, uh, you know, censorship, you know, there, there are first you need to get it. If you've got a book, Mark, if you're going to kind of. Uh, publish a book you and you're going to put your name on that book in france in 1840 1749 you need to have royal approval which to say that you need to actually have the approval of the censor but there's a lot of other um people involved in censorship and these are kind of moral authorities in addition to the actual administrative authorities so if this censor and the kind of the director of the book trade works under and with the chief of police in paris Uh, who works for the king. There are also, you know, there's the Sorbonne, as I said, the um, theologians of the Sorbonne. There's the parliament, which is not a representative body at all, but it's a kind of a a hereditary body that um, is set up of essentially magistrates who uh, look over the very, very, very kind of Jansenist leaning group. And there's a, you know, the, you know, the Jesuits, a lot of people who will chime in about the suitability of various works. And they gang up on works which are polemical. Um, it quite, it, It's quite interesting to note that, you know, the book trade was something of had the kind of privileged status of Silic- Silicon Valley, maybe in the 18th century, that it was a huge moneymaker for a lot of people. And the uh, crown didn't want to stamp, you know, uh, you know, stop uh, books from coming out, even books that were somewhat polemical because they they had um they had in a, a, a huge economic value, and they didn't want to drive books into Holland, which gets to the second part of your question. Um, the best way to publish a polemical book, or a book that would might challenge either uh, religion. Or less likely, but sometimes uh, the you know the uh, royal authority would be to publish it in Holland. Holland had you know an enormous publishing industry, and books would come back into France, you know, packed in you know straw or in barrels, et cetera, and it would be sold. There would be uh, you know less control, no taxes, no royal or privileges, et cetera, and you could use different names. One of the f- favorite ploys of Dolbach one of Diderot's friends, was to you know, find out who had died recently and put the name of that person on a book Holland <laughs> and then bring it back. And so there was no problem. So um, uh, there were a lot of ways around censorship, but it was very hard for Diderot because you know he was uh, had been arrested, and I'm, I bet you're going to ask me about that. But he was arrested, and, and after he got out of jail, it was very difficult for him. Paris was kind of like. Um, as somebody once put this to me, it was kind of like Soviet Moscow combined with the uh, um, you know Tehran and uh, during the time when um, of great kind of metaphysical uh, um, kind of policing. so uh, um, you know Diderot, was spied upon as soon as he got out of jail. It was very difficult for him to, to publish. And so he had to do you know, a number of other sneaky things. And he didn't publish like Dolbach did. This is the Baron Dolbach, H O L B A C H Dolbach who would um, send his uh, manuscripts off to be published abroad and
0: then come back. You alluded to the fact that uh, it, Diderot was uh, indeed uh, in prison for a period of time. What was it that led to his imprisonment? And how, did that imprisonment have any sort of impact upon his life or his career?
1: You know... Um we have to kind of go back to 1749 and this is a, a, a funny year in French history. It was a year after a very unsuccessful military campaign where uh, France gave away some land that had, it had actually won in a battle, but you know, gave back, um, uh, people were unhappy. There were a lot of, uh, militant poets, which is such a funny notion that were <laughs> active this time, the King was under siege. There were all sorts of rumors that the King was, um, um, a kidnapping children and 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 uh, using their blood to bathe in to stay young. There was all sorts of strange things going around, and so there's a crackdown going uh, on at that time. And this is the time when Diderot chooses to publish his book, The Letter on the Blind. Now, The Letter on the Blind itself is. Um, a very interesting uh, philosophical text, which is kind of tough to read uh, if you were to buy it at a bookstore. But it's fascinating in that it has this great scene where a blind man is dying, and he essentially uh, refutes the existence of God in three or four different, very powerful ways as he's dreaming and dying. And this is a um, really the moment where Diderot clearly is switching over to an atheistic as opposed to a deistic view of the world. Um, and this alone would have gotten him in trouble, but he makes fun of somebody in the beginning of the book, and that's what that's what started the whole problem. He made fun of somebody who was uh, um, a, a prominent aristocrat, and she um, wrote... Uh, um, and, and the chancellor, essentially somebody on the equivalent level of the chancellor, and that, and 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 this person um, uh, says, you know, we need to round up the usual su- suspects during this time of great upheaval, and Diderot was uh, at the wrong place at the wrong time. So I think he was not arrested for the letter on the blind. But of course, once he's in jail, they're reading this stuff, they understand that he had uh, written that and he they knew from a, a police file that had been keeping on him that he had written the, something called the, the philosophical thoughts, and a, a libertine uh, novel called the indiscreet jewels as well, which is something of a prototype of the vagina monologues. And that um, this is a a court uh, set in Africa where women's genitalia are telling their tales. And, um, uh, you know, Dieter was very embarrassed. He didn't put his name on any of these books, but he's particularly embarrassed about that book. And so they held him for three months in prison in Vincennes, which is in the east of uh, just outside of Paris to the east. And um, you know this really you know changes his life. It's a, it's the kind of the fulcrum point. Uh, interestingly enough, he lived for 71 years, and he went to jail really at the exact half point, the midpoint in his, his existence. And you can really divide up his
0: life that way. It's hugely significant. It's interesting as well because you explain how it tempers his writing in 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 some respects that he doesn't change his thoughts necessarily. It's not as though he recants, but he he realizes that after he uh, leaves that he has to express himself more carefully. And And you tie this into the project of the encyclopedia. I was wondering if you could start us off by talking about what was the encyclopedia, how did it begin, and at what point does Diderot become involved with it?
1: Yeah, the encyclopedia starts off like many projects with, um, you know, a little kind of funny story that there's a, a a funny German guy who approaches this printer named Le Breton, like Le Breton, and uh, asks him if he might be interested in translating an English dictionary, which was very um, popular at the time, Chambers Cyclopédia, not encyclopedia or encyclopedia, but cyclopédia. And uh, Diderot, at this time, is, a, as I said, a, just a translator, and he's brought on very early as um, somebody to help out with the articles and do some editing. This uh, guy uh, gets um, fired from the encyclopedia. They hire a second, much more prominent French editor, he gets fired. And finally, after two or three years, uh, Diderot and his friend, D'Alembert are hired, and so he becomes the editor of the encyclopedia in the late 1740s, right before he goes to jail. And one of the reasons that people say he should get out of jail is because they want him to take care of the encyclopedia. He gets wrapped on the knuckles. He is seen as this unrepentant atheist in many ways by many people, but he still has this hugely powerful or or important project, which is synonymous with French knowledge and science and so on and so forth. And so the uh, people do want him to finish that project. And so uh, the first uh, volume comes out in 1751 and he finishes the project uh, uh, in 1773. There are 17 volumes of text, 72 or 73,000 articles There are another 11 uh, folio size books um, uh, uh, filled with incredibly beautiful illustrations, um, um, 11 volumes, as I said. So it's a 28 volume, enormous project, life sucking endeavor, which lasts about 20, 25 years and goes through all sorts of um, um, problems. It's a it's a kind of a great story. And uh, to get back to the question of censorship is where you which is where you started now censorship here makes the encyclopedia. Uh, if people are allowed to say whatever they want, it gets boring, I think. And the fact that there were all these constraints uh, created the genius of the encyclopedia where Diderot had to hide his thoughts and hide uh, what he really thought because he was, uh, um, couldn't easily be locked up and not for months, but for decades. So, um, there are these great feints. There's all sorts of kind of irony and satire inside the encyclopedia. There's, you know, fabulous and funny cross-referencing. He's really the, the father of the hype of hyperlinks. (laughs) And that's, and that's really what's going on in encyclopedia in many many uh, many many instances. Um, you know, funny cross references to things that uh, don't make sense, um, or you have a very stodgy, straightforward article, and then you refer it to something which contradicts the fundamental essence of what you are talking about. So, if you are talking about an ecclesiastical subject, then the the cross reference might be to intolerance, where you get uh, you understand that what's being said in the initial initial article is uh, implicitly being refuted by what comes later. And people poured over this. It was such a kind of a crossword puzzle type experience where you're looking for clues and things.
0: It's a very, uh, uh, it's a work of course that doesn't just uh, involve Diderot's work. Efforts and, and, and writings, but it incorporates a very wide swath of some of the leading lights of uh, the French Enlightenment. And, and this gets to uh, a, a, an interesting question that you do uh, illuminate in your book, which is what is Diderot's place in the Enlightenment, and and what are his relationships with the other major uh, thinkers of the era? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, yeah. So let's start with uh, first the the encyclopedia project itself. It was, you know, seen. I think it's important to point out, and and your question really uh, uh, underscores this, that the encyclopedia project was seen as a collective endeavor. If philosophy and and particularly challenging and polemical philosophy. Um, you know, circulated before the 1750s, uh, um, you know, generally, you know, it was packaged in small, easy to transfer books that you could hide out of your jacket, etc. And one of the major changes in this book, and there are some big, you know, books like this before, like Bale's dictionary as well, but the, but the encyclopedia Trumpets, um, encyc- uh, in uh, um, the ideology of encyclopedism, and this is a, an emancipatory understanding of philosophy, the the power of philosophy to free people from their own prejudices. It's a gigantic cudgel. People have called it a, uh, a machine de guerre. Um, it's you know sometimes pretty um, uh, tepid compared to some other books that you know, say Dolbach writes, but it really is this. Uh, it has a particular you know, stature, this giant, beautiful luxury edition. It really brought free thinking and, uh, in, as I said, an ideology of emancipation into a public in a way that had not been done before. Everybody read this book because they knew that um, the major, as you said, leading lights were participating. Um, uh, Buffon, the great naturalist, did not participate, but De bon did. Voltaire was writing for it initially. Rousseau as well, Diderot's friend Rousseau was also writing for it he wrote about three hundred articles on music so there's it was a collective endeavor by what they called it a société des gens de lettres the society of men of letters so it was this idea of a collective endeavor of really the the centuries um, most brilliant people coming together, and it had an enormous kind of cultural capital. It, uh, people like Catherine the Great subscribed to it, um, and there were 4,300, I think, subscribers to this uh, ultimately. And then, of course, there were um, uh, you know many, many more editions. I think that Robert Darton, the great uh, um, historian, estimates that there were 25,000 copies circulating by the end of the century. So. There was a lot of a lot of clout behind the encyclopedia, and uh, uh, you know Diderot uh, you know started off uh, a relatively unknown a person who had written these kind of um, uh, atheistic books when he starts, but he becomes a, the public figure of the encyclopedia. D'Alembert, his co-editor, was um, you know far more famous initially. He really is a kind of a almost Newtonian Newton level genius in terms of mathematics. And, um, um, and, but, uh, Daniel Bell drops out and Diderot is the one who finishes this entire project and becomes, uh, as I said, synonymous with the encyclopedia. In fact, it's one of the reasons his legacy is so hard to pin down is that he is often reduced to this vulgarizer of, uh, the era's knowledge. He's the, uh, you know, uh, the, the person who made the encyclopedia and not much more. Um, that's what's his reputation
0: in the 18th century among many people. I took it as something of a testament to his st- the stature that he gains from the encyclopedia when he becomes one of the figures in the satirical play that comes out in, in the 1760s. And I thought it was a very interesting uh, uh, look at how, uh, at, at both how the era viewed Diderot uh, as a result of the Encyclopedia, and also it gave, as you describe his re- response to it. it, it gives you a, a really good uh, look at the, the at the man as not this great thinker, but as a human being with his own uh, vulnerabilities and sensitivities.
1: Yeah, the, the play you're referring to is Palisos Les Philosophes. And uh, the context for this play, which was an incredibly successful and satirical play, is that uh, in the, 17, in the 17, late 1750s and early 1760s, the encyclopedia was either under siege or banned. And people ganged up on it in a way that people gang up on people on the Internet these days. And the most effective way of doing so was not the Internet. It was the stage for someone like Parisot. So he writes a satirical play that has um, a number of the kind of Enlightenment figureheads on stage. Parisot loved Voltaire, so he did not put Voltaire on stage. But he certainly made fun of Rousseau. Rousseau uh, was not a, an Enlightenment figurehead at this point. He'd kind of pulled out of the Enlightenment project, if there was a project. But uh, he makes fun of Rousseau, and he makes fun of Diderot. And Diderot is this plagiarist, uh, kind of deceitful, um, kind of a d- disseminator of fake news, and really the leader of this gang of charlatans, these philosophes who are taking over and poisoning France. It really is uh, kind of reminiscent of the way we talk about our own uh, world right now. Rousseau uh uh Rousseau's treatment is really much funnier. Um, they had Rousseau, who is of course the partisan of the I mean, the stereotype of the state of nature the the natural man the, the noble savage, etc. They had Rousseau come out on stage or the the character representing Rousseau come out on stage on all fours. And acting like an animal and he pulls a cabbage out of his pocket and eats it. And during the 18th century, people didn't eat raw vegetables. So they reduced him to the state of animal. And it's very funny um, play, which is kind of a Moliere like type play. Uh, It's all in verse. Very clever. I think it actually would work out much better than Diderot's own plays, which are much more kind of solemn. And, uh, you know, uh, they just don't uh, work out so well. Pallisot's play is not a great play, but it's a uh, it's pretty darn funny in the context of kind of Enlightenment politics. And you're right, Mark. You know, there's a lot of um, a really uh, interesting. There's an interesting way of seeing Diderot's own preoccupations, insecurities, and anxieties being capitalized on, or you know, pointed out by by Patisot. had a very, really, uh, a very sharp pen, and he really nailed Diderot in this play. Diderot hated this play. It was really one of the dark days of his whole life. Encyclopedia under siege, having troubles at home. And of course, this this uh, this play came out, and it was just it was a huge success. And you know, it, it, you know, Diderot lived probably about uh, half a mile from the Comedie Francaise, if, uh, and just to see people lined up to see the play for you know weeks on end was must have been just brutal. <laughs>
0: You mentioned that, he also, that Diderot was a playwright himself. And this gets this uh, interesting question of his later plays, because he's, he's not just doing the encyclopedia, editing the encyclopedia full time. He's also crafting his own literary works as well. And yet, as you describe, many of these works don't see the light of day in his own lifetime
1: yeah um and it, if I could say two words about the way I set up the book um you know Diderot is a tough person to write about because you know he was not like Rousseau Rousseau um, was so preoccupied with who he was as a person and he spent a lot of time uh, introspectively sorting through his own past and the confessions and we have a kind of a great idea, it may not be totally truthful, but we have a really good idea of. Who russo is and there are other writers who leave behind a fantastic set of letters early in their life and diderot's early life is a desert you know it's really tough to kind of figure out what's what's going on in in, in his life um, but um, you know one thing we we certainly do know is that after he gets out of prison um you know and of course the correspondence picks up pretty well at this point but he gets out of prison he realizes he can't write in the same way that he was writing before all these these polemical works and so he he starts writing for the drawer, essentially, as the French like to say. So he writes for the drawer and he uh, figures out that he's going to target posterity. And this is why i set up the book in two different ways where i have the first half of the book is somewhat biographical when i'm moving through his life piecing together his life at different stages The growing going up in lancre Diderot um at um you know going to to paris and working through uh, uh, um, and dropping out of the, the sorbonne deciding not to be a priest becoming a free thinker a translator a husband and so on and so forth and running the encyclopedia and then you know, the second half of the book I call late harvest because Diderot uh, really produces the greatest late harvest for us of the 18th century. So the second half becomes much more thematic and thematic because it, um, I use the, his texts to um, uh, I group up a group his texts thematically uh, in order to talk about the things he's, he's left behind because he had he left um you know a a large number of writings on uh, uh, unpublished writings on art history or art art criticism, on you know, what I'm calling kind of anachronistically kind of sexology, um, and his political writings, etc. And these were all discovered after he uh, died. He uh, created three caches of, of manuscripts, one of which went to his daughter, uh, one of which went to Catherine the the Great, as well. So he's, he's kind of um, um, making sure that after he after he dies, uh, uh, his uh, works will appear and kind of explode like bombs uh, in, in French literature. And that's exactly what Goethe said about him, that, you know, when he dis- when Goethe disco- discovers Ramel's nephew, one of Diderot's books, he's just blown away by it and said this is a, you know, going to be a bomb within French literature. And Diderot was preparing for this. He was hoping to talk to posterity. He was hoping to talk to us. And that's why I called it Late Harvest, because, you know, we are the recipients of this. And I think it's really fun to think about him really um, uh, creating a group of writings that was uh, um, designed for a different generation in many ways.
0: He really is in that respect speaking it to the future in, in, in a way that uh – uh, that's very calculated. I mean, most people are definitely writing for the present; They're hoping they have that impact, but Dito really is thinking about, you know, what is going to be, the world's going to be like once he's gone.
1: Yeah. I mean, he um, is so prescient in many ways. Um, you know, he's thinking about you know, different kind of political revolutions. He's thinking about uh, natural history in a very prescient way. He's thinking about the future. He doesn't, um, he does uh, he does predict a lot of things. Um, but at the same time, in terms of history, he's not sure whether, um, the world is moving in a progressive way or in a regressive way. He's pretty pessimistic actually for the, the latter, during the latter, uh, part of his life. He thinks that there might be a kind of a terrible revolution and the sciences will kind of disappear. He thinks his encyclopedia might be a great repository of knowledge, which will help. Um, and you know, humankind uh, make progress after a dark, a, a dark era. So, um, you know, it's a, it's actually interesting that he is thinking about the future. He's not exactly who uh, is going to be living in the future, but he's often talking about that. I mean, in terms of being prescient, if I could t- say a few words about that, that's pretty interesting. He's, he's certainly, um, chatting about, uh, or, or certainly thinking about, um, uh, a lot of ideas, which, uh, um, are very, very uh, pertinent these days. He talks about uh, the young United States in the late 1770s. He was an Americanist um, uh, since the 1760s, had met with Benjamin Rush in his apartment. And he is uh, looking at the United States as this fascinating experiment. You know, the uh, Amer- North America, for him, had both the dangers of slavery and the the, just the horror of slavery which he really um, loathed and wrote about uh, wrote against uh, um, quite vociferously and effectively and it was also the place where there was this these American colonies were um, creating the first democratic uh, um, 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 Republic a republic that uh, in the in the 18th century that really fascinated him and he was it he was a he, he took a, a few uh, moments to write to uh, the Founding fathers and the people who had claimed their liberty and taken their liberty from uh, the British in the late uh, 1770s, and he he writes to the so-called American insurgents and says, "You know, don't worry about foreign powers. This is not going to be the problem for this small country. It is going to be your own wealth and success, which will be your problem. You will perhaps have a." Uh, a generation uh, after many generations you will have a class of super wealthy people and you'll have a class that is not super wealthy and if you're not careful you may even have a tyrant so it's a really interesting uh, way to talk to, to um the future about he's talking about politics he's talking about art he's talking about just about everything and often he's talking to a select group of people and then there's a second kind of audience uh, you know there's a kind of a diachronic um Um, um, side to his writing where there's always kind of two temporalities he's writing in the present, certainly for a small audience. And then he's always writing for us as well.
0: Mentioned that he left one of these caches with Catherine the great. And as you explained, they have a very interesting relationship. One that was of incredible importance to Diderot in his later years. I was wondering if you could, if you could uh, explain for us what that relationship was uh, and what, and, and how it led Diderot to do something that he was not really always very happy to do, which was travel.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Diderot was not a great traveler. I mean, Rousseau was a great traveler, and Voltaire got around quite a bit as well. He's, you know most famously goes to London, then he goes to uh, um, Frederick the Great's court as well, and then he goes to, to Ferney. He's moving around. Diderot pretty much hung out in Paris, made a couple trips to Langres, where he grew up, but it makes this great trip to see Catherine. Now, how would someone like Diderot get to know Catherine the Great? It's kind of a funny thing. They're separated by an enormous distance. But I think you have to remember that first, you know, Catherine is looking toward the capital, the cultural capital of Europe, as are all um, of all all members of European royalty. Um, the, the Paris was the epicenter of um of European culture and arts and letters and painting and so on and so forth. And Diderot and his buddy, uh, Grimm, um, had, uh, created something called the literary correspondence, which was this manuscript only newsletter, 15 copies or so that circulated around Europe. And inside it was kind of the, um, you know, gossip, you know, literary, um, uh, musings, uh, criticism on various plays and operas, and so on and so forth. And one of the things inside this was Diderot's art criticism. Art criticism. So he went to the uh, Salon, uh, which is a uh, bi- uh, biennial um, um, art exhibition taking place at the Louvre. In fact, the name salon comes from, you know if you talk about an art salon, it comes from this room in the Louvre called Le Salon. And every two years, they would have this uh, show, art show. All the artists belonging to the Royal Academy would uh, hang their paintings, sometimes drying in the walls. And all of Paris was invited. And he would write this up for various people, for, for this, this small group uh, 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 of, of uh, princes and European royalty, including Catherine the Great, after um, uh, the 1760s. So... Um, anyway so this this information would travel all around and, and he also um, he um, ended up uh, working for Catherine in Paris. He made friends with the uh, Russians. the Russians were trying to lure him to, to Paris. The Russians were trying to lure um, a number of French um, um, figureheads to Paris. they tried to hire d'Alembert. they tried to bring Diderot, they tried to bring Voltaire there and Catherine is getting uh, you know maintaining a, 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 an epistolary relationship with a lot of different people including Grimm. Uh, Dido doesn't go to uh, uh, Russia initially. But he does uh start, you know, corresponding kind of implicitly with her through this correspondence. And eventually he starts um uh working with and for, I mean working for her after she uh does this amazingly generous thing. She buys his library when he is kind of fallen he needed some money for a daughter's dow- dowry. And as the encyclopedia is just about kind of petering out and his, his uh uh the money he's getting from the encyclopedia is drying up, he um he gets an enormous infusion of cash from Catherine who uh, allows him to keep his library and she makes him the uh, the uh, royal, the kind of imperial librarian for his own library and gives him pays him 50 years in advance so all of a sudden he has a lot of money thanks to thanks to her and so he says well i will be your your cultural ambassador, essentially, in Paris. And so he's going around uh, buying p- paintings for her as she's putting together the Hermitage collection. It's pretty amazing. And he negotiates an enormous uh, purchase of the second biggest collection of paintings and art in France. Um, and this was a, really to uh, the dismay of many people in France but he didn't care he thought that you know france had uh, kind of turned its back on him in many ways and so he he does this and, and he sends this off and this really becomes the, the foundation for the Amietach collection one of the main main collections you know Rembrandt and lots of excellent ex- excellent canvases so um, so he's working for her and uh, eventually he uh, gets to a point in his life in 1773, he's an old man at this time where he feels very grateful to her and at the same time he's kind of sad about life in Paris. And he makes the trip to see Catherine. And he's thinking about maybe doing a second encyclopedia where he would not be beaten up in the same way he was beaten up in France doing the encyclopedia where it was canceled and you know, in, uh, um, uh, forbidden to – he was forbidden to publish it for, uh, on two occasions. So he goes to to, to see Catherine and perhaps set up the encyclopedia and also talk to her about reforming uh, reforming Russia. And so this is where we kind of enter into the political stage of Diderot's life. He uh, gets to Russia and before he goes there, he's preparing a a lot of uh, small essays on uh, Russia. Catherine herself had thought about reforming certain things uh, and she had published a book to this effect. And when he, gets, when he gets gets there, he has these famous discussions with her. He goes over to her, um, uh, the uh, Winter Palace, uh, three times a week in the afternoons for tea. Uh, very famously, he uh, gets excited uh, about uh, many of his discussions as he's talking and reading his essays. He apparently bangs his hand on her leg. And, uh, you know, the next time he shows up, she has ordered that a table be put between their chairs. So he doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> Subtle. Um, <laughs> Very subtle. And, and at the end of this, he, you know, before he goes home, he's there for several months. He goes back. He's somewhat dismayed as well because, you know, he said, you know, why aren't you taking my suggestions? And she says, well, you know, the problem, uh, Denis, the problem, uh, Monsieur Didot, is that, you know, your ideas are great uh, on paper, but I have to uh, work on human skin. And he understands at this point that some of the ideas he's proposing, uh, uh, in terms of creating a much more democratic
0: and
1: fair-minded empire, certainly he wasn't talking about uh, making a full republic or a democracy or anything like that, but more representation for people and certainly treating the serfs better, he realizes it's not going to work out. And, and later on, although he, published, he, he, pro- he promises he would never say anything bad about her during his lifetime, he, he certainly writes a lot about uh, Russia. In a number, in several kind of later political works, and uh, particularly a book called the, um, uh, his, uh, um, you know, well this this is book it shows up in the, the history of the two Indies and some other kind of political writings he's writing at the end of his lifetime. And here he really takes Catherine to task for being a, a tyrant, an enlightened despot, uh, and saying that this is really, uh, um, you know, what, what she's doing here. She's, she's setting herself up, for, setting the empire up for a great fall, because even if she is an enlightened despot, the people who succeed her may not be as fair-minded as she is. So, um, you know, Diderot becomes much, much more political at the end of his life, and I think that his interaction with Catherine is a thing that pushed him in that direction.
0: One of the things that I did, yeah. You mentioned these writings. Were they also for the drawer or did Catherine uh, see them in her lifetime?
1: Uh, yes and no and yes. It's really funny because she saw them during her lifetime, but they were designed for the drawer, essentially. He did not publish them, um, particularly the things that that targeted her directly. There were some oblique references to her in in the uh, history of the two Indies, which was uh, another book where he kind of wrote in the margins. So this, is not, this book did not have his, his uh, name on the cover by any stretch of the imagination. But um, in uh, in these these uh, texts which were designed for her, where he wrote in the margins of the the book that she had written, the Nakas. Um, she, uh, she got these after he died. And, uh, I think in 1780, he dies in 1784, but she gets them in 1785 when, the, when the, all these things finally show up in St. Petersburg and she's absolutely livid, absolutely livid to see, uh, many of the things he had written about, about
0: the, uh, the Russian empire. Yet, despite that, she, uh, you know the fact that he did write these writings. He, she was very generous to him to the end of his life. You describe what happens in his in his uh, last few uh, months, where he's dying, and she's uh, you know pays for this uh, this very nice apartment uh, in, in uh, on the on the rue Richelieu, which, in which he uh, dies, and and it, it gives a sense as to a person who. You know, he has this nice long life and he is respected uh, by some of the leading lights of his time. And yet you describe how in, in the immediate decades following, he, especially when you have the event of the French Revolution, how his, uh, his, his, he still remains in many ways very controversial among people who you would think would have been inspired and embraced a lot of the things that he wrote about.
1: Yeah um let, let me say one thing first about Catherine um I think you I think you made a really good point here that he's um you know I think that she you know he feels and she feels they're both members of this intellectual aristocracy he certainly knew where he stood vis-a-vis Catherine the Great uh, empress of all the Russias. He knew that quite well, but he did feel that, you know, they had this, this, this uh, very important, uh, bond, this, in, these incredible discussions. And even though she didn't budge on uh, many things, he, he did uh, admire her greatly, um, uh, through, you know, throughout his life. And she gave him a, a, a cameo ring before he left St. Petersburg. And he apparently treasured that his, the rest of his life. Um, and it's true that, you know, as you know, to get back to the second part of your question, where you're talking about his legacy, um, I think that's a, um, you know, another a very important topic. Um, as he is moving, as he, I can maybe uh, um, talk a little bit of what happens when he gets back from France. He uh, gets back to France. So he goes back to Holland for a while, and then he goes, goes to uh, uh, France. And he gets there pretty much just as louis the 16th the ill-fated louis the 16th is taking over from uh, his grandfather louis the 15th and there's a time where diderot feels like things are going to get better um but they don't get better um he, he thinks that the uh you know the reformers um his friends like Togo have taken over and had, are going to uh, you know usher in a new era in french politics but after a few years that does that kind of fizzles out and he's you know um, uh, he's dismayed, he's preparing his manuscripts for his, uh, for, for posterity, et cetera. And his reputation at this point is, you know, a little bit unsavory because he publishes, he publishes an essay on Seneca where he, uh, he writes about Jean-Jacques Rousseau after his death. And here he kind of lambasts Rousseau, uh, um, as a kind of a lying cheat and a charlatan and a fraud. And really is taken to task by uh, a lot of people for that. So his legacy, you know, as he's dying, as, as you know, in his last years, is as follows: He is the the person who was the great vulgarizer, the head of the encyclopedia, the person who introduced introduced a lot of uh, ideas into France uh, uh, that were um, uh, by that were um, uh, p- potentially very disruptive. He is somebody who you know ushered in the great secularization and desacralization of france he had a really unsavory reputation uh, among a lot of people as he dies and he was not associated with any great work he didn't have a a social contract he didn't have a call deed, he didn't have uh, some of the books we now associate with the enlightenment and he dies and he dies and uh uh, when the revolution happens five years after his death you would think that perhaps you know he would be rehabilitated by the revolutionaries but they were very smart and and uh KG, and they understood Robespierre in particular that uh, associating their movement, this, uh, uh, this liberate this movement of liberation, which was perfectly consonant with the way that Diderot was thinking and writing, but associating their movement with uh, atheism, which uh, with which Diderot was synonymous, would have killed it, or really, you know, uh, made it not work out as well in a lot of, for a lot of people. So Diderot was forgotten. The great heroes, the intellectual heroes of the revolution are Rousseau and Voltaire, both of whom were uh, pantheonized, put in the pantheon in the 1790s, where Diderot was essentially uh, forgotten at that point. And he becomes, uh, you know, something of a contentious figure in the 19th century. Um, by this point, you know some of the, uh, the, the late harvest has begun. And his texts are trickling out. You know, there's the text, the nun, that trickles out, that, that, that is published. Rameau's nephew uh, is published, uh, you know, in, in the um, in the 19th century. Uh, D'Alembert's dream, this great natural history, or uh, this kind of uh, uh, almost science fiction type take on the origin of human species comes out. There's a lot of things that are appearing. Jacques Le Fataliste, this book on determinism, is, is out. And all of a sudden, Diderot... Uh, becomes much more pertinent because he's got these texts that people can read. And he becomes, again, a flashpoint between conservative France and more progressive France. His rehabilitation doesn't really take place until you know the 1870s or so. At this point, um, we move into a new Republican era. If you remember in eight, 19th century France, 19th century France is going back and forth between you know restored monarchy, republic, and back and forth, back and forth, et cetera. And um, and in the, and, and various revolutions as well. So in the, it, by the time that the uh, Third Republic um, has uh, taken root, the progressive thinkers and we're talking about um, positivists, free thinkers, and atheists, and people who really are wed to the idea of progress and science and the desacralization of France take up Diderot as their hero. And in many ways, in the 1870s, 1880s, he supplants uh Voltaire as uh as the kind of most emblematic figure of the Enlightenment. Statues pop up in in Roland. A statue pops up in um two statues pop up in, in, in Paris. There's still one was melted down by the Germans, but the the the, the more famous one by Gouterin is on the Boulevard Saint Germain. And um you know there's huge uh, huge uh, um ceremonies and uh, celebrations of who Diderot was by the positivists, and you know, at the, uh, um, um, you know, three, four thousand people are gathering uh, in near Trocadero to uh, to, uh, um, you know, celebrate Diderot's uh, uh, the anniversary of his death, etc. So, it's an interesting time for Diderot, and you know, after that, he, you know, and during this time, he becomes really one of the the cherished figures of the avant-garde, you know, Freud and Marx. Uh, there are a lot of people who look to him as somebody who's really. Really pushed the uh, the frontiers of knowledge and and also helped people to think about um, some of the fundamental questions of what it is to be a human in a way that is not dogmatic, um, like many other people. His his view of of, of life is um, projected into uh, a, a dialogical form in many of his works, and so the fact that he doesn't come up with a big, strong, dogmatic, monological truth is. Um, really synonymous with Diderot, and he's, he seems so modern to us right now. I, he's tough to teach, I'll say that. I'm teaching a Diderot class right now, um, and you know, undergraduates have a tough time moving through uh, um, you know four or five big Diderot books. But he really is a, an interesting and uh, a, a great companion, in the same way that Montaigne can be a great companion um, at all points in your life. Diderot is certainly like that as well now.
0: I, I was when you're describing the in effect the the rehabilitation of his reputation i couldn't help but think about that uh that that uh, first chapter the chapter in your book where you describe your visit to his hometown and you describe all the streets that are named after him and there's a motorcycle dealership named after him and a coffee bean shop named after him i'm thinking is there really any better sign of the general acceptance of a person nowadays than the fact that the hometown just names everything after him from the school schools down to your cigarette shops?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the things that I um, wish I had developed a little bit more, Um, you you know, but it's uh, the the juxtaposition of the legacy within geography, if I can put it that way. But the imagined geographies of writers are, I think it's such a fascinating subject. And Long, certainly, um, as you said, there's the the entire town, which is tiny. You know, I think about 8,000 people live there. Is just full of Diderot names. What I love that's so funny is you have the Diderot Middle School and the Diderot High School. So (laughs) they kept them both. They kept them both. And in Paris, you know, he really has kind of disappeared. Many of the buildings in which he lived have disappeared. His famous, uh, his apartment on Hutahan has disappeared. This is pretty much uh, at the intersection of the Boulevard Saint Michel and uh, the Rue de Rennes in Paris, his his uh, street was um, erased by during the Osmansh uh, the Osman um, Revolution of Paris in the, in the uh, 1860s. So, you know, per, uh, Diderot has kind of disappeared from the Paris landscape in many ways. I mean, there's just so many figures and ghosts who are competing for space um, in Paris, whereas in Long, he's everywhere. It's really a, a really interesting place to visit. If anyone um, uh, wants to kind of get a good taste of Diderot, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fun place to be. There's, some, there's a good restaurant called the Diderot Restaurant, and there is uh, a great museum
0: in his honor, too. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Ah. You know, I had two projects in my—I've got three things, um, and I'll, I'll be really brief here. Um, for a while, I was thinking about working on Anthony Benizé and de Equiano um, uh, on abolitionism and bringing these two uh, um, um, abolitionist thinkers into kind of dialogue in a, in a, a back-and-forth dual biography well, um, um, Equiano is a, a, a Nigerian, uh, 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 an Afri- African who is an emancipated um, slave and, and writes his own autobiography. And Benizei is one of the most important abolitionists, probably the most important abolitionist um, in in history, both in the United States and in England as well. He really kind of begins abolitionist thought. But these guys, I started reading about them. They're wonderful. They do great things, but they're so earnest and they are so good that there's, it's hard to, to find, um, enough emotional, um, kind of slip uh, sloppiness as you find in Diderot's life, uh, that to, to make that part of the book interesting, it might be too, it might be too triumphalist. And I was thinking about writing, you know, about, uh, um, you know academia a little bit, but I think probably I'm going to go back to the 18th century and and write about um, you know Louis the 16th, perhaps. So um, I, that whole era is so interesting. I think most people write about Louis the 16th and Marie Antoinette, and I might think about writing about that era from a different perspective, um, thinking about the relationship between uh, Paris and Versailles, and not in Versailles, Marie Antoinette and um, and uh, Louis XVI, uh, Louis the 16th. So we'll see. I'll I'll keep you posted.
0: (laughs) Please do. And and hopefully when uh, you have completed uh, those works, we can have you back. That'd be great. Well, well, uh, Andrew, thank you very much for taking some time from your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. And you too, Mark. Thanks so much.